Yeah, that's um, hand it over to Al. So you can go ahead and start. Yeah. Uh, can people see me, right? Yeah? Well, they, they can't really see you, but, but they can hear you, I think. Okay. Yeah, good. Uh, hello, everybody. It's, uh, it's uh, nice to share my observations with you. And uh, uh, I think uh, the, the, the topic about China and U.S. rivalry is a very important topic. And uh, uh, in 1989, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, uh, since that time, the world becomes a unipolar world where U.S. Uh, dominance is very obvious. But I think uh, since the turn of the century, the, the, with the China rising as a uh, 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 very important at least regional hegemonic power, um, China uh, is changing this uh, world situation that you may say that uh, from a unipolar world, we are now uh, 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 becoming a more multipolar world. Of course, uh, how far this is uh, this may go is still an unknown. And uh, but we must aware that this is happening, and uh, it was is going to pose a big challenge to to the labor movement and to all the leftists in the world. Uh, uh, firstly, I think um, uh, we have to uh, uh, to to know uh, why China has become uh, so. Uh, 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 sorry. Why China is able to grow so quickly uh, in such a short span, uh, such a such a short time span? Huh? Uh, as I said in my book, uh, because China has its own advantages, it is a uh, a very special kind of state capitalism and also a special kind of monopoly capitalism, where the uh, the, the 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 state power actually fused with the power of capital. So in this sense that uh, uh, it was able to uh, embark on a path of state-led growth, despite the fact that the private sector is also important. Uh, so that is, uh, uh, but we can divide uh, China's rise into two phases. The first phase is China rise up as a uh, a very, very important um, uh, merchandiser exporter. It is based on the uh, super exploitations of the Chinese workers and farmers, and also, of course, the environment. It has become the sweatshops of the world, is precisely because it it is not just exploiting them in the economic sense, it is also be, uh, in a sense of uh, political repression. To the extent that they, the, I mean the state, uh, denies uh, the, the workers the basic freedom of association, which robbed them the ability to defend for themselves when their rights was infringed. So, uh, uh, precisely because of this uh, so-called totalitarian uh, uh, regime, which uh, gives the Chinese Communist Party the uh, uh, leverages to uh, to become the sweatshop of the world. Uh, this has important 
global consequence is firstly, this change the trade flow between Asia and the U.S. markets. Previously, uh, it, uh, the Asian countries uh, is uh, always an, an, an exporter to the U.S. market, but they do it on their own. Each country uh, produce uh, maybe intermediate products or final products and, and, and then uh, export to the U.S. market. But with the China rise as a sweatshops of the world, it changed the trade flow. It becomes uh, the Asian countries first uh, uh, exporting or importing. Uh, chiefly, it is uh, uh, exporting uh, components uh, or, 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 or uh, the mineral resources or other primary products to China. And then uh, to uh, make you f to, to, to have uh, processing and then uh, assembly and, and, and then assembling in the China's sweatshop. And then China's becomes the key, uh, very key exporter to the US market. So it changed the, uh, the, the, the trade flow between uh, the triangles of Asia and China and the uh, US market. And, you, and in this way, it has also uh, promoted a, 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 a accelerated integrations of Asian countries around China. And Japan is a little bit marginalized. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then the uh, uh, and 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 these things also uh, poses a a a a a a, uh, a a issue for China because of this, which means uh, China's uh, have to its export and imports has to heavily relies on the Malacca Strait, which. 90% of the China's maritime transportation goes through the Malacca. But that, that, uh, that, that, that really brought, uh, brings a, a concern for the, for the party state is because what if uh, they, they, this narrow street, huh? uh, this narrow gateway uh, was being, uh, is being cut off in the future by U.S. Then it will immediately, immediately bring uh, immense problems to China. And uh, so you can see that uh, China is becoming a sweatshop of the world in itself brings in a logic of China's expansionism because in order to, 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 to protect this uh, uh, gateway, uh, this Malacca uh, Strait as an important gateway uh, for China, import and export. This uh, necessarily implies that China has to uh, expand its military presence in the in the area, which in this case is the South China Sea, so that uh, uh, it could be it can be sure of its own uh, uh, national so-called national safety. Uh, in this sense, the safety to to the office uh, uh, international trade. And then we comes to the second uh, uh, period where China, on top of being a great merchandise exporters, since the turn of the century, China is also becoming a great capital exporter. And uh, this is surely also uh, this is this only this surely adds to the uh, 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 to the um, China's expansionism logic. 
China's always uh, 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 was uh, proud of one thing that, uh, well, um, our capital export, we are investing on the infrastructure where the Western countries or the World Bank uh, or the IMF are less, are very reluctant in, um, uh, in investing in the uh, in infrastructures in developing countries. Well, uh, uh, there is a grain of truth here. And uh, uh, just a week ago, I was in Nepal uh, uh, participating in the, uh, in the AEPF conference, and I uh, uh, made a presentation on China investment. And then I was taken uh, for sightseeing, and they, um, uh, 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 local lectures comrades uh, showed me around that, look, this is the highway uh, funded by the Chinese investment, and we thank them. Well, um, uh, I, I, I will not uh, dispute uh, the, the, that uh, in certain cases, uh, Chinese investment in infrastructure uh, do bring some benefits to local uh, people. I mean, uh, first of all, uh, to uh, uh, to the working population, that is possible. We can't deny that possibility. But at the same time, we must also bear in mind one thing: that with China's heavy investment in the infrastructure, which could only bring in profits in twenty years' times or thirty years' times, this what this means? What this means that China uh, necessarily has to be very concerned about uh, the host country's political situation, that they need to make sure that those pro-China's investment parties will remain in power uh, uh, as long as their, their, their investments uh, has not been uh, fully refunded. So here, so we, uh, uh, the, this uh, China so-called going global. In, this, in itself also uh, necessarily brings uh, 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 possible foreign intervention uh, on the side of China into the developing country's politics. And then um, uh, if we look closer, of course, I will say that we have to judge uh, Chinese investments case by case. But there are also cases which is uh, less encouraging. Huh? Uh, for instance, uh, the, the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese big companies, uh, um, is uh, is going to invest a totally new uh, container uh, terminal uh, in Hamburg, and uh, 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 which is a fully automated uh, terminal. And uh, uh, the, uh, some of our comrades have talked to the Hamburg uh, Port uh, Work Council peoples, and they are very concerned because they expect hundreds of jobs will be lost because of these new investments, especially because of the fact that uh, uh, China, uh, uh, no, sorry, uh, the uh, the Hamburg Port already is suffering from overcapacity mm. with a new automated. Uh, terminal ports, a uh, term uh, 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 container terminals. This will only uh, 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 encouraging a race to the bottoms, both amongst the business and amongst those who uh, those workers who need jobs. So it is a uh, uh, it is a really very great concern. Huh? Uh, hello, Ashley. Uh, how much time I have now? Left? You you have three minutes left. 
Okay, yeah, very uh, few times. So I will skip, huh? So you can uh, 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 Chinese uh, uh, rises as a huge uh, exporter of both merchandises and capital, necessarily bring itself into conflict with the U.S. Uh, uh, because of this, because of its endogenous uh, 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 expansionist logic. Uh, but surely we must also bear in mind that uh, China is still economically and technically much weaker than the U.S. So we should not uh, put on a par, put China on a par with uh, with the U.S. And in military terms, U.S. has 800 military bases all over the world, while China is just beginning to have maybe one or two. And also, we must uh, 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 we must distinguish to uh, the uh, the nationalist feeling of common people from the uh, party itself. Uh, because uh, what we are talking about is the uh, colonial legacies of China. If China is becoming an imperialist country, then it is the first one which is a former semi-colonial country. Mm -hmm. And this has consequence until today because, uh, 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 first of all, the memories of uh, being invaded by imperialist country for over 100 years, and especially by the, US, uh, by the Japanese uh, occupation forces. Therefore, the U.S. supporting uh, the Japanese claim over the Senkoku Islands itself surely reminds the Chinese people of the unhappy uh, memories of being invaded. So this is it. Uh, so if Chinese people are very keen for uh, for, for national self-defense, there is a uh, 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 at least a grain of legitimacy here. But of course, uh, the the the, the, the party, the, the the party state. Uh, 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 say claims over South China Sea, which I do not support, and also is uh, treating some certain developing countries as as they did uh, 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 as the form uh, as the imperialist countries once did to these uh, uh, colonial uh, countries is also outrageous. But we uh, anyway. Also, there is a, on top of that, I'm finishing. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, we have. Uh, uh, we already also see one thing, sir, that uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong uh, uh, is, is still heavily under U.S. or the British government's uh, influence, even if it is indirectly. And this, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, um, uh, we, uh, we support Taiwanese uh, uh, self-determination. But we must not uh, 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 forget one thing that the Taiwanese uh, 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 the Taiwanese identity or the Taiwanese independence, the history of which is long, but uh, the fact that it has capturing a major population support is only uh, a, a thing of uh, uh, a thing of uh, uh, something like thirty years of history. So. Uh, uh, the China is and according to international law, of course, I, that doesn't mean that uh, we are support of this. But this is uh, as a fact uh, that even uh, the U.S. recognize uh, Taiwan is a part of China. The only uh, uh, debate or dispute is which China, <laughs> uh, PRC or ROC. Huh? So. Uh, uh, but anyway, this speaks for one thing that uh, uh, that in the 
in the in the current situation, in the current geopolitics, uh, China see, uh, sees uh, uh, unification with Taiwan with Taiwan as is a legitimate claim. Uh, we can dispute that, but uh, uh, the problem is uh, we can see that uh, uh, this colonial legacy is there. And uh, 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 and the U.S. is treated uh, Taiwan also as its uh, protectorate, which, for the moment, objectively, it provides some support for Taiwanese. Uh, 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 but also in the future, it uh, may also goes the other way around. Say, for instance, it is the U.S. which has betrayed Taiwan in 1970. Uh, one when U.S. Uh, 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 maneuvers and make the U.N. expel the Taiwan's uh, government from the U.N. and allows the, the PRC uh, to join the U.N. Can so, you wrap up, uh, Al? This this is uh, 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 two sides of the facts, and we must uh, be aware of. Uh. So this is uh, my presentation. Uh, thank you, all of you. Uh. Thank you. Do you want to? Oh, yeah. Do you want to stay in the meeting or do you want to go to sleep? Um, uh, I think <laughs> I have to say that I need a rest now. Okay. <laughs> yes, because I have a uh, whole afternoon function here in Hong Kong. <laughs> okay. Get some rest, okay. Al. Thank I'm you. Sorry, uh, That's uh, all right. You guys uh, go on. Huh? Okay. Thanks so much, Al. Get some sleep. Thanks. All right. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye. All right, uh, um, so I'll go next and um, I'll cover some of the same territory that um, Al call, uh, covered in his talk. Um, but I want to start with uh, the obvious proposition, if you're following the daily news, that the rivalry between the United States and China is really a central inter-imperial rivalry of the 21st century. It's not a symmetrical rivalry, as Al talked about. It's an asymmetrical one in which the U.S. is the dominant power, but China is a serious rising rival in the world system. And Trump has made this absolutely clear in his entire foreign policy since he's come into office and in his national security strategy documents, which he doesn't have anything to do with writing, clearly, because he doesn't write or read much of anything. But his advisors and the core of the state managers of the state of the United States have made it absolutely clear. They've called for a shift from the so-called war on terror to now great power uh, confrontation. And they've defined um, China and Russia specifically as revisionist powers. So they see especially China but also Russia and regional powers as threats to U.S. imperial domination of the, the world system. And Trump, the Trump administration has confronted China over everything from trade to 5G high tech if people are following that battle with Huawei right now and over struggles over the waterways of the um, South and East China seas, and specifically the, the Strait of Malacca, which um, Al was talking about. But we should be clear that this confrontation between the United States and China is much deeper than the Trump administration um, itself. It's much deeper than the network of protectionists and nationalists and hawks that are in the Trump administration. It is rooted in the developments of global capitalism, the relative decline of U.S. imperialism, and the 
rise of China from a dependent capitalism into an increasingly independent center of capital accumulation and therefore geopolitical power in the world system. That's why there's actually a growing consensus in the US ruling class from the business community, from the high tech community, to the political state managers, to the political party politicians that something must be done to contain China as a, as a, a, as a geopolitical competitor. Trump's solution to the crisis of US imperial strategy is what some have called illiberal hegemony. So it's still committed to domination of the world system, but not in the kind of liberal integrationist way where you incorporate all the different states of the world system under the US domination in a collaborative multilateral system. Instead, it's a much more transactional relationship state by state with all the different um, states in, in the world system with the aim of putting the United States first. That's the Trump slogan, put America, um, uh, America first nationalism. Um, applied to China, this has meant uh, launching what after Pence's speech at the Hudson Institute can only be called a new Cold War. That's the kind of um, atmosphere that they've created. The entire strategy of US imperialism had been to superintend um, uh, this neoliberal world order. That was the strategy they had coming out of the Cold War. The last thing they wanted to deal with was a rising geopolitical and economic rival. So they, the, the, the development of China has disrupted what had been their grand strategy um, because what they were trying to do is incorporate all the world states into a neoliberal world order of free trade um, glo globalization. Um, and they had hoped, therefore, to run the state system without any rivals. And if you look at their national strategy document, national security strategy documents from the 1990s on, their main aim in this setup was to prevent the rise of a peer competitor. That's in Clinton's national security strategy documents. It's in Bush's national security strategy documents. It's in Obama's, and it's certainly there in the Trump administration strategy documents. So three three developments have undermined this kind of unipolar world order that the U.S. was trying to create, um, um, and then has caused a crisis in their grand strategy. The first one is the neoliberal boom itself, which rather than creating a worldwide conflict-free system, has led to development of new centers of capital accumulation, most importantly China, which has gone from just a workshop of the world to now potentially rivaling the U.S. in research and development of high technology, specifically Huawei. That's why Huawei is in the news, because it's dominating 5G technology, which is key for the Internet of Things which is going to be key for high-tech capitalism throughout um, the, 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 the world system. So the development of the world system over the course of the neoliberal boom has upset the apple cart of, uh, of the, the U.S. grand strategy because there are the new centers of capital accumulation that are becoming politically and economically assertive of their own interests. The second development is that the U.S. suffered gigantic defeats in the so-called war on terror. People remember the U.S. went into the Middle East largely to put Middle Eastern oil under the control of the U.S. state and therefore be able to be blackmail any state that's dependent on Middle Eastern oil. That was the aim, to lock in U.S. imperial hegemony by in the invasion and occupation of the Middle East and rolling regime changes. That ended in the biggest defeat that the U.S. has experienced since Vietnam, and that is the defeat in Afghanistan and I Iraq. And it set back their whole program of rolling international, mainly in the Middle East, regime changes. Um, 
And then the third big development um, is the, the Great Recession, which hammered the U.S. economy in particular, the U.S. and European economies in, in uh, particular. The U.S. got out of it, as did Europe, by massive austerity measures and stimulus packages, but they haven't been able to generate a new expansion. So the U.S. economy, U.S. geopolitics, and U.S. imperial domination, because of these three crises, suffered a relative decline. Not an absolute decline, it's still the biggest state in the world system, the biggest imperialist um, power. Um, but what this did is open space for other powers to become assertive in the world system. Um, most obviously uh, China, which took advantage of the crisis of the United States and its own benefits from the neoliberal boom to uh, become increasingly economically and geopolitically uh, 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 assertive. So the result of this is we no longer have a unipolar world order, but we have an asymmetric multipolar world order in which the U.S. is the biggest bully in the planet, but there are lesser rising bullies, both regional and in the case of China, a potential geopolitical imperialist competitor with the United States. So in this context, China has taken advantage of the relative decline of the United States to assert itself. Most aggressively since the rise of Xi Jinping as the leader of China back in 2012. Um, and he really has abandoned what had been the kind of consensus of the Chinese ruling class's political, geopolitical strategy, which was to not be too assertive to try and ride the wave of the neoliberal boom and not get into big conflicts with any states in, in, the, in the world system. Since Xi Jinping's rise, that has changed dramatically. Xi Jinping, recognizing the development of Chinese uh, economic and therefore geopolitical power, has asserted the new Chinese dream of reversing the century of humiliation and uh, reclaiming China's role as a world imperial, um, world imperial, po imperial power. And they've aggressively pursued suit it, both because it's in their interest and to alleviate crisis dynamics in the Chinese economy. That is, they have a massive overcapacity problem within the Chinese economy. So they're in many ways exporting that overcapacity problem um, to, 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 the world, to the world system. So if you look at some of its economic um, assertion in the world system, most dramatically the One Belt, One Road policy, which is a $1 trillion infrastructure development program, which is intervening in Asia, Africa, um, the Middle East, and even stretches into sections of Europe. So they're trying to build a whole infrastructure to bind the world economy around the Chinese export uh, uh, model. China's also tried to, to, as I referred to earlier, tried to rise up the chain of value in the world economy from being that sweatshop export uh, processing manufacturer for the world system, the sweatshop that Al was talking about, to the, now becoming a competitor in the higher levels of the value chain. Most importantly, high tech, which they, the state has backed with tremendous amounts of money, sometimes explicitly, sometimes behind the scenes. Huawei has been the recipient of lots of Chinese state, state funding, and that's why it's been able to rapidly become a competitor with Samsung, Apple, etc. And I think it's now the second largest cell phone manufacturer in the world and is dominating 5G technology in whole sections of the, the world system. China has also begun to project its military power into the waterways of Asia 
for precisely the same reasons that Al talked about. It's dependence on the transshipment of commodities, imports and exports that go through the Strait of Malacca. So who controls that strait? Who controls the waterways of South uh, and East Asia are pivotal for its economic interests. This has brought it into conflict with both states in Asia, in the Asia Pacific, and with the United States, which has been, through the Fifth Fleet, the main naval power in, in the, the, the um, region. Finally, China has become increasingly assertive in international politics over everything from climate change to you name it, in terms of asserting its um, interests in the, in the world system. So the U.S. decline and China's rise has put American imperial strategy into a profound quandary. It's now faces a rival that it is integrated with. This is a peculiar dynamic because U.S. multinationals use it as an export plat processing platform. All of Apple's iPhones are constructed in Foxconn factories, which is a Taiwanese multinational that ha runs plants in China for export to the world system. So they're highly financially productive and services integrated with the, the Chinese economy, but they see China as a rival on every level, um, and so they have to uh, find a way to confront it. And Hillary Clinton captured the contradictions very clearly when she said, how do you get tough with your own banker? That is, China has massive dollar currency reserves because of its exports to the U.S. economy, and so that it basically has all these currencies in dollar forms that it can use to blackmail the United States. So it means that there's this funny contradictory um, dy dynamic. So. That's the situation. Before, before the, the, the US, U.S. was in this situation with China as a potential rival, it had a policy of combining containment and engagement, which what some policy analysts call cungagement. That is, they both balance between containing China as a rival and engaging with it because they wanted to take advantage of it as the sweatshop, as an export processing platform, but they wanted to push back against its state capitalist industry, the state uh, state uh, uh, the state characteristics of not being a free market um, state. And so if you look at the sequence of administrations from the 1990s on, the U.S. shifted an emphasis from containment to engagement back and forth depending on the particular political moment. So Bill Clinton called China a strategic uh, a strategic partner when they were in the takeoff phase of the engagement with China. Then George Bush came in and called China a strategic competitor. And really, Obama was the last gasp of the engagement strategy in which he shifted dramatically away from engagement towards containment with his famous pivot to Asia policy, which included really three dimensions um, to deal with the rise of China. Number one, economically, they wanted to bind all of Asia together on neoliberal terms to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the TPP Treaty, which would have been to a problem for China because of its state capitalist industries, because of its state sponsorship uh, of all sorts of corporations and state ownership of corporations. So China was excluded from the TPP. Militarily, Obama wanted to shift 60% of the U.S. Navy out of the Middle East into, China, into the eight waterways of the Asia Pacific. And politically, what the U.S. wanted to do under Obama was to shore up the alliance structure, the various ASEAN multilateral alliance structure, to make sure that China couldn't use its economic might to incorporate the rest of Asia on Chinese terms. So that was basically the strategy. 
for tragically for the Obama administration, it completely failed. The US wanted to shift its emphasis out of the Middle East to Asia. That didn't play out, and the U.S. had to be militarily focused on, on uh, containing the series of crises in the Middle East. The TPP went up in flames, and because they were unable to comp complete that pivot to Asia, a lot of the states in the regions began to balance in between the U.S. and China rather than neatly line themselves up with the United States. So Trump, and I'll conclude with this, introduced a whole new strategy of a liberal, illiberal hegemony to solve Washington imperial um, crisis and it's really had four dimensions number one the aim was um, domestically to strengthen the national security state to police the borders and scapegoat and surveil immigrants and in particular Muslims in the United States. The second has been um, to try and onshore American manufacturing, which Obama was already talking about, so that it would be outside of dependency on the Chinese export processing platform, in particular the defense industry. If you read all the defense industry document, defense documents that have come out since Trump came to power, they're very worried about their supply chains being dependent on Chinese manufacturing. So they want to protect those supply chains so they only come from either US allies or from the US defense industry in, in, the, United, in the United States. And the third has been to shift from the war on terror to great power rivalry, in particular building up the American military to confront what they see China doing in, in Asia. Um, and the final thing is to put America first in a, uh, a transactional relationship not only with antagonists, but also with allies, and abandon the kind of multilateralism that was characteristic of what the U.S. had been doing in the neoliberal world order. God, okay, I'll finish very quickly. Applied to China, this new imperial strategy is moving the U.S. towards a new Cold War with Beijing. In economics, Trump is doing battle with China over absolutely everything. The, it's trying to stop high-tech transfer, which had been the relationship that the U.S. and other multinational companies had with China. They'd have to transfer their technology as part of partnering with Chinese capital. They want to crack up the state um, capitalist industry, open up Chinese markets to the United States, stop China's state support for its national champions like Huawei and high-tech. And in politics, Trump is trying to pressure American allies to ban Huawei and 5G technology throughout the world system, in particularly in Europe, and the so-called five A's, the five I's, the historic um, Anglo-Saxon partners of American imperialism, because they want to shore up their high-tech defense industries ties to the United States and prevent China from getting 5G technology into defense industries in those different five um, eyes uh, 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 countries. They're also trying to shore up state-by-state -state, um, alliances um, uh, against against China. In military terms, they're building up the, in particular, the Navy and deploying it more aggressively in the Asia-Pacific than we've seen in a while, and that's led to all sorts of skirmishes and near collisions between the U.S. and Chinese ships and increasing skirmishes over the military bases that China has built on some of the islands in the South and East China seas. All of this is escalating tensions between the United States and China. Um, 
they may cut a deal over the big trade negotiations that are going on right now. It looks like they're about to cut a deal, but nobody should think that this is going to end the tensions between the, the U.S. and China. As The Economist magazine wrote, neither country's interests are about to change. America has legitimate concerns about the national security implications of being dependent on Chinese chips and vulnerable to Chinese hacking. China's pretension to being a superpower will look hollow as long as America can throttle it, its firms at will. China is destined to try and catch up. America is determined to stay ahead. So that gives you a sense of this growing inter-imperial rivalry. And I think it's the key thing that the international left takes a very clear position, especially in the United States, that we have to oppose American imperialism and oppose all the China bashing, which is characteristic of all the political establishment, from the most conservative wing, even to elements of the progressive and socialist left that see job loss to China as the problem. That's nationalism, American nationalism, we have to oppose it. While we oppose that, we should no, give no political support to the Chinese state, which is a rising imperialist state. Instead, we should build the kind of international solidarity from below between working class people in the United States and working class people in China who share a common interest in a fight for a redistribution of wealth on a global scale in the interests of humanity. Sorry I went on a little bit too long. And I'll, I'll pass it on to Kevin. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. Um, I think uh, sort of following on from Ashley's talk, I think uh, I was just looking at the news today uh, about the Chinese, uh, the U.S. government banning uh, visits by Chinese, a few Chinese scholars uh, uh, from China on the ground of that that they may steal uh, trade and scientific secrets, and that's kind of been a strategy in the last at least in the last year or so uh, when. Last year at the Senate hearing, the FBI director uh, presented to the U.S. Congress arguing that China uh, is a whole, presents a whole-of-society threat that requires a whole-of-society response. That means that we're not only uh, seeing, the U.S. government not only seeing uh, the Chinese government as a threat, but also Chinese people, mm -hmm. scholars, academics, even students, that, you know, that they could be spying for China. Mm -hmm. Um, this is just one of the clear statements, you know, that we have uh, that indicate, give you a sense of of how the, the U.S. political establishment and the U.S. state think about U.S.-China uh, rivalry. Uh, but I should also just mention, you know, it's not the U.S. and China rivalry, as Ashley mentioned, it's not simply between two countries. It happens in global contexts and involves many, many more countries mm -hmm. and regions. So I, um, I, I was previously based in China, I grew up in China, but for many years I, I lived in Australia. It's another place where that rivalry plays out mm -hmm. pretty, in pretty dramatic ways, actually more than in the US in, mm -hmm. some, in some fashions, where there are very intense debate about uh, the role of China and China-Australian relations. And there you see a lot of debates, not about uh, imperialism per se, but more about how Chinese students, overseas students came to Australia and you know, and they are spying on each other, and they are affecting, uh, you know, uh, don you know, through their donations, uh, through you know, Chinese businessmen's donation to uh, Australian politicians, uh, they're influencing uh, Australian politics in sort of, in sort of similar way that mm -hmm. we have this debate about Russia Mandolin. Mm -hmm. But the evidence is pretty. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not saying there's this. Net, you know, the Chinese government doesn't want to. Uh, shape Australian politics, but a lot of it is just based on pretty thin mm -hmm. evidence. 
anyway, uh, you know, just short way saying, a long way of saying, you know, we only we need to also look at other regions in the context, you know, mm -hmm. look at US-China rivalry in the context of other regions, certainly uh, 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 in Africa, where there's a lot of Chinese mm -hmm. investment uh, that fuels uh, labor conflicts, because uh, Chinese companies treat local workers pretty badly. Uh, in Southeast Asia, where you know Al mentioned, that there's a lot of Chinese investment in infrastructures, but also in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Same in Central Asia, working with dictators mm -hmm. in Central Asia, mm -hmm. building infrastructure, etc., etc. So we have to, I think, look at all those dynamics, and you know, Latin American too, where mm -hmm. which you guys think, you know, this is our backyard. Yeah. We really shouldn't let China uh, have any role in uh, in our mm -hmm. hemisphere, essentially, our, our backyard. Uh, same, there's a big debate in Europe uh, mm -hmm. about Italy, for mm -hmm. example, right now, about the one by one role initiative to what extent European government should uh, agree to cooperate with China on Chinese investment. So this is all being played out uh, almost at the same time. Yeah. It's, been, it's been going on for, for quite a few, not, you know, in some places, uh, Africa, etc. It's been going on for longer, whereas in, in Western Europe it's more recent mm -hmm. development. Um, so, you know, I, I'm primarily a China labor person. So I, for the past decade, I've been working, researching, uh, writing and thinking about labor rights issue in China. So I would always sort of start to start with, with labor, uh, uh, both as a way of understanding China uh, and, and, and global uh, geopolitics and global economy, and also as a way, as the basis of building uh, international solidarity. Um, and I think that you know, and that requires a understanding of the labor struggle in China. Uh, so, I, which I will try to uh, sketch out in just three or four minutes. So, over the as I also started uh, his talk by by uh, outlining the sort of export uh, growth and, and economic boom in China for the last 20, 25 years. And the Chinese working class expanded dramatically, and mm -hmm. uh, not surprisingly, uh, as the working class grew. Uh, there was also a lot of organizing, the strike waves, uh, uh, there have been many wave, uh, many wave of strikes and uh, workers have been, uh, you know, protesting and, and, and organizing wild kite strikes uh, a few thousand times a year. We don't mm -hmm. have the complete statistic. The Chinese government, it's very smart in that way, it doesn't really release, it, it, I'm sure it keeps very good statistics, but it, it doesn't release any statistics on on labor strikes. So we don't have a full picture, but the, the best estimate is every year there's several thousand strikes. Um, and that means that there, there's, it present, the working class in China presents such a uh, uh, social uh, threat, mm -hmm. uh, not yet a political threat, but it's definitely a social threat to the Chinese regime. And that has invited a, a strong wave of repression in the last few years. Mm -hmm. uh, workers, labor activists, have been uh, rounded up and arrested mm -hmm. and, and been put on trial, and um, and it doesn't. This won't stop workers from organizing because uh, there are so many more workers, right? And the workers organize themselves without the need for a union organizing them, which means that you know it's really hard to control workers of uh, to, and to stop them from organizing. Nevertheless, uh, there has been a very intense uh, intensifying repression within China uh, to prevent and also to stop uh, workers from engaging in, uh, in labor struggles. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and, and more generally, uh, uh, because the Chinese even though Chinese economy has been booming, you know, one consequence that, that comes no surprise to anyone here is the sharpening of inequality. Mm -hmm. 
and that means that wealth inequality, income inequality. So before uh, 1980s, in the Maoist period, uh, there was just so many issues with Maoist period, uh, and I'm not Maoist, so I, I won't defend anything, but it was one of the more equal society mm -hmm. globally, mm -hmm. and it just shot up dramatically in the 1990s and, and grew exponentially in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. A result of that is something that we hear in the US you know, saying in the last 30, 40 years as well, mm -hmm. is the... Um, is the inequality, you know, uh, you know, access to education, access to housing, access mm -hmm. to uh, economic opportunity for young people, for workers, mm -hmm. have been dramatically declining. So as a result of this, there's just, uh, you know, the Chinese government is extremely concerned about uh, social unrest, mm -hmm. and that's that's that means that you know the internal security uh, apparatus in China has get, been getting larger and larger budget, and it's been increasing its monitoring and censorship. Uh, and the Chinese internet is, is one of the most close, mostly most closed mm -hmm. sort of internet, censored internet uh, anywhere. Um, so what, what could be done? Uh, so, I have, so I have been living in the US for the last almost four years now. And a lot of what I do in the US is to, to try to work with uh, workers, labor activists, and left activists, both in China and in the U.S. So I've been helping with, and actually has been uh, uh, part of that effort broadly as well, with with Haymarket book, is to publish uh, books on, mm -hmm. on worker struggle in China, written by workers or, mm -hmm. or labor activists themselves, right? There are a lot, many, you know, good academic studies you can find uh, on China, on labor issues in China, but we do also want to bring mm -hmm. the workers and the labor activist perspective, right? And mm -hmm. the market book has, has been kindly worked with us mm -hmm. and published two books mm -hmm. already in the last uh, the three years, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is called China on Strike, strike and yeah. the second is yeah. called Striking to Survive. Yeah. Both looking at strikes in China, how workers organize, mm -hmm. based on very extensive workers' interviews. Uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is uh, I've been trying to have it done book tours. So mm -hmm. we bring workers and activists from China uh, to the U.S. to meet with, uh, to give talks and meet with left activists, unionists, and, and workers uh, in the U.S. to in basically to, to increase understanding. Uh, it, it's 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 probably when I first came to the U.S. It was a bit of a surprise how little uh, even you know, most of the U.S. left understand China. Again, it should have come as a surprise, but I was still surprised because I think a lot of people in China understand U.S. more uh, than, than the other way around. But because if you are the, the, the most powerful country in the world, everyone pays attention to you. Uh, whereas if you are you're the center of gravity, you're the global power, you don't really pay attention to, to other countries mm -hmm, as, mm -hmm. to the same extent. Uh, you know, so as a result of that, uh, you know, we, we thought it's great to have those people-to-people -people exchange between workers uh, mm -hmm. and activists in both countries, rather than going through bureaucracy. You know, uh, you know, I've, we've never worked with the the, uh, the, the government-controlled trade unions in China because mm -hmm. they they aren't just going to send their bureaucrats to the U.S., which they do, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which I don't think is helpful at all. So that's another thing that we do is to come, you know, book tours. We did multiple uh, cities. Uh, last year, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, if uh, you know, and hopefully we can do most of the things. And uh, we also encourage you know people to 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 follow uh, labor struggle and, mm -hmm. and social movement in China again to an increase understanding of the internal dynamics mm -hmm. uh, again to to counter the sort of right wing perspective that dominates a lot of discussion in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. I actually mentioned that. 
uh, that's a right-wing narrative mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the U.S. Um, and you know, more recently, one of the, the leading China anti-Chinese, uh, not Chinese state, but Chinese. Anti-China person, State Stephen Bannon, yeah, who has yeah. been hiding a new, uh, revived, I think, a yep. new commission yep. uh, or, or committee mm -hmm. with explicit uh, aim of contain, containing China. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so we think it's really important to develop for people in the U.S. to develop a, a left, progressive, socialist perspective mm -hmm. on China. And it's not, you know, it's 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 really. It's really it's not simple uh, mm -hmm. when you have the dominant dominating pers uh, perspective in the U.S. that is very conservative, right wing, mm -hmm. or oh, mm -hmm. I best liberal in the mm -hmm. sense that you know we care about some humanizing China, uh, humanizing issues, abusing China, uh, but that that's the basic extent to which we uh, really care about mm -hmm. China, if, mm -hmm. if any. Uh, and and to, to be to be to be precise, I mean there are some issues like Xinjiang, which I think the left and right agree to the extent that. We don't think that should happen. You know, mm -hmm. It's clearly internment, there was uh, massive repression mm -hmm. and control mm -hmm. uh, of the Muslim population and also other pop uh, minorities in Xinjiang. That is something that we can all agree on is, mm -hmm. is wrong. Uh, but still, I think it's, it's important for the left to, to develop its own critique mm -hmm. rather, than, um, rather than just sort of go going along with the right-wing liberal and yeah. human rights narrative. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people have done, tried to do that. Uh, David Brophy, mm -hmm. uh, I don't, actually can maybe mention it more in the question time, a Q&A period. He's someone, he's a scholar, but also active, has mm -hmm. been trying to think through how do you approach something like Xinjiang from a left perspective. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I, I would just end with, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, engagement, uh, you know, at, at sort of grassroots level. Uh, so a lot of what I, We'll be focusing on in the U.S. in the coming period is to work with community groups, activist groups in New York City, uh, and more broadly on the East Coast mm -hmm. uh, to host talks, uh, have discussions, uh, and yeah, and we you know encourage you you know whenever you have opportunity, uh, please please come along, and I think it's important for us not simply talking to the Chinese students and and uh, the Chinese. American community, but also to engage more broadly with Americans, American mm -hmm. groups, and American left. Mm -hmm. um, yep, that, that's all. Thank you very much, and I hope, I'm looking forward to having more dis discussion. Awesome. Uh,